we haven't met, uh, my name is Dominic. I'm one of the pastor elders here. Ephesians chapter 1, we mentioned it the last couple of weeks, but we're using the Christian Standard Bible, that translation of the Bible, uh, through this whole study. So the CSB, if you have an app, you could probably just pull that up. Christian Standard Bible. Otherwise, it'll be very close to whatever else you're reading. So, like Billy said, we've begun a series uh, on the kingdom of God, and we're using the book of Ephesians as a backdrop. The first part of that series, as you can see from the screen behind me, is called Kingdom Kids, as we talk about our identity as Christians, specifically that all of our identity flows from us being the children of God first, kingdom kids first. Billy introduced this concept and idea Last week, um, if you weren't here and you haven't heard the sermon yet, I would encourage you to do that because this week's going to build on last week. And the week before that, I gave a prologue to the whole series. I'd encourage you to check that out online, either on our website or wherever you listen to podcasts. So today we're talking about our identity as Christians in this Kingdom Kids section of this series. And one of the cool things about doing team teaching is that we get to jack stuff from each other without ever giving each other credit. So I totally jacked this title from somebody who I'm not going to give credit to. (laughs) Title of the sermon is, Who We Are Flows from Whose We Are. As we look today at Ephesians chapter 1, specifically verse 2 and the beginning of verse 3. But to understand the context of what Verse 2 is saying what Paul is about to say. We're going to read verses 1 through 14, which is quite possibly the most Christocentric, Christ-centered passage of Scripture in all the New Testament. And Paul composes it in this really beautiful, almost poetic form. And this is how he starts his letter, with a poem about how wonderful Jesus is and what that means for us. And so today we're primarily focusing on verse 2, but we're going to uh, read the first 14 verses just to get some context. Ephesians 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, to the faithful saints in Christ Jesus at Ephesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. In him we also have received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of those who works of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will. So that we who had already been, who had already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. In him, you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And when you believe, the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. This is God's word for us today. Let's pray. Lord, what a rich, intricate, and yet really pointed and simple passage of Scripture that has so many implications. We're expectant um, 
of how you're going to speak to us. And even the ways I, I just believe, Lord, that you want to change people's lives through these coming verses and these coming weeks and months. And we ask that you wouldn't miss what you have for us today as we are just starting to you know, dip our feet into this passage these last couple of weeks. We ask that you'd show us everything you want us to. I ask, Lord, that you would anoint me, that I would be in step with what you're doing and how you're wanting to do it and what you're wanting to say here in this place. I, with my brothers and sisters, just open our ears. And church, if you're sitting here in front of me, maybe just say in your heart, like, all right, Lord, here I am. I want to hear what you have for me. I want to know what you have for me. I want to experience, understand, feel whatever you have for me. And if you agree with that prayer, you said, amen. So what a beautiful passage of scripture, right? Ephesians 1 verses 1 through 14. Who is Christ and what does that mean for us? And in case you missed the glory of the passage we just read, I'm just going to recap it in bullet form, all right? He starts off in verse 2 and he says, grace and peace we have in Christ. We, we have grace and peace in Christ. We'll look at that more in a minute. In verse 3, he says that we have all the spiritual blessings of heaven. They've all been given to us. Verse 4, it says that we are chosen. We are made holy. That is set apart. Blameless. Guiltless, that is. Verse 5, that we have been predestined. That means that not were we just chosen. We weren't just chosen. We were pre-chosen. And chosen for what? For service or for the Lord's army? No, that's not why we were chosen. We were chosen, as it says, for adoption as sons. Not slaves, sons. Not soldiers, sons. Not servants. Verse 6, we have been lavished with the glorious grace of God. What cool imagery, right? We have been given this glorious grace in excess, like poured out upon us as if we were being bathed in this glorious grace. Verses 7 and 8, we have been redeemed and forgiven as part of God's perfect and wise plan. Verses 9 and 10, that we are the result of God's perfect, mysterious, and pleasing will. A will that pleased God. That is, it made God happy to perform it. Verse 11, we have a glorious inheritance. And why all of this awesomeness of verses 2 through 11? Verse 12, for the purpose of the glory of God being praised. God uses his saving and redeeming us to bring praise to his glory. And verses 13 and 14, that we have been given and sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our future inheritance. If we, as, as we have been given the Spirit, we are sealed, we are branded, we are marked as children of God, which is guaranteeing us that we will receive the future inheritance in the family, as family members, an inheritance that can't be taken away from us. This is what Christ has done. This is what we have, who we are in him. It's found in Christ. Speaking of which, 12 times in those 14 verses, Paul uses this phrase, in Christ, or in the beloved, or through Christ. Paul is overflowing with Jesus as he writes this. And we need to understand as we're dipping into just the beginning of this whole section of scripture, what a value we have, what a treasure we have in Jesus if we're going to understand our identity. Because Jesus is how we know the Father. Jesus said, if you know me, you know the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Everything that I do and say, I do what the Father does and says. To see Jesus is to see the Father. And to know Jesus is to know the Father. And to know the Father is to know who you are. It is crux as we look at our identity. 
So now that we know where Paul is headed in the coming verses and where we are headed in the coming months, let's just read uh, the verse and a half that we're focusing on today. Verse 2 and just the few wor- first few words of verse 3. It says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He starts off and he says, Grace to you and peace. Grace. Grace can be simply defined as undeserved favor. That is getting what you don't deserve, receiving what you don't deserve. And when you talk about the grace of God, it can be defined as the undeserved favor of God. And Paul, so after Paul introduces himself in verse 1, right, he says, I'm gonna, uh, this is who's writing. Paul the apostle is writing. And then he in, uh, states who he's writing to, the, the church in Ephesus, the faithful saints in Christ Jesus. Then his greeting begins with grace and peace. Now, it would have been common for a Jewish man to start off his letter uh, with an, a greeting of peace. You know, in Hebrew, it would have been shalom, right? We've all heard people say that. Shalom, it means peace to you. But what is not common is how he prefaces this greeting of peace with this greeting of grace. This is a particularly Pauline thing that he did in his letters. He says, grace and peace. And notice that it's not peace and grace. It is grace and peace because grace always precedes peace. In fact, grace precedes everything good in the kingdom of God. And grace precedes everything that Paul is about to break down in these coming verses. And grace, quite frankly, precedes everything that we're about to talk about in this kingdom series at Reality Ventura. In the kingdom of God, grace precedes everything good. And everything we just read at the onset of, uh, of this sermon, these 14 verses— We have none of it without grace. So he says grace to you and peace. And what kind of peace? Well, Jesus said in John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace. That's what kind of peace. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. The world gives peace for sure, right? Or at least attempts to. But the kind of world that the 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 kind of peace that the world gives is peace like when there is an absence of war or conflict or turmoil. This is uh, the kind of worldly peace, you know, the kind of peace that comes from the world. But let's make it a little bit more personal. In our lives, when we talk about peace or experiencing peace, it is often similar to that kind of lack of war, lack of turmoil thing. It's like when there's a lack of hardship in some way, maybe a lack of relational conflict or a lack of our kids getting into some kind of trouble then there is, there is some kind of peace there. A lack of the absence of, you know, hard times for, sadly, for our family. When we're in seasons where it's like, okay, nobody's dying right now and nobody's being diagnosed with cancer and none of our friends are talking about divorce. Okay, this feels like, this feels like a peaceful time. The dictionary defines peace as freedom from disturbance, quiet, and tranquility. For some, stuff like financial security or a solid career path or just knowing what the future holds and where we're headed can bring what we perceive as peace. That's how the world gives peace. And this is how the world perceives peace, extremely if not fully contingent on circumstances. And circumstances that, quite frankly, we have no control over. 
But this is not the kind of peace that Jesus was speaking of in John 14. And this is not the kind of peace that Paul is speaking of here in Ephesians 1 when he says grace and peace. And how do we know this? Well, first of all, there was none of this kind of peace in the first century for Christians. When Jesus spoke those words in John 14, I don't give to you peace like the world gives you peace. He was speaking to a bunch of men who had just left everything that would have brought them stability and offered them this kind of worldly peace. Jesus was not offering them that kind of stability, nor was he offering them a lack of war or turmoil. turmoil. In fact, Jesus would say two chapters later in John 16, I've told you these things that in me you may have peace. And then he contrasts it. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. What is found in the world, Jesus is saying, is trouble. In their world, in our world, Jesus is not offering trouble to go away in order to bring that kind of peace that the world gives. He is offering that in him we would have trouble, uh, peace in the midst of trouble. And with Paul, it's the same. Paul wrote this letter to the church in Ephesus around the year A.D. 60. So we're talking about 30 years after Jesus had died. In A.D. 60, the persecution of Christians was in full effect. If you know anything about history, Christians were being martyred for their faith day in and day out. To be a follower of Jesus meant that you were good chance going to be arrested, probably beat, possibly killed, like the 11 of the 12 apostles were and thousands of other Christians in the first century. And so when Paul pronounces a greeting and blessing of grace and peace to you, he was not offering or pronouncing the kind of peace that comes with stability or a lack of hardship, turmoil, or stressful times. He was offering or pronouncing the kind of peace that comes in the midst of hardship, turmoil, and stressful times. A peace that only comes, he says in verse 2, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a different kind of peace. This is the kind of peace that is not contingent on circumstances or resolution or understanding or comfort or stability. This peace supersedes all of that and is based on the character of the rock of ages who never changes and cannot be shaken. Worldly peace is temporal. Right? Because it's based on circumstances that are created by humans. But the kind of peace that God offers lasts forever. It is eternal because it is not based on circumstances. It is based on God himself. And this is not just peace that is physical, that we feel physically or emotionally or psychologically. This peace goes also down to a spiritual level and to the core of our spiritual being. Every facet of what had no spiritual peace prior to Christ in Christ is like brought from dissonance into like perfect harmony. Before God, it was like we were, I mean, before Christ, we were with God like two out of tune guitars trying to play together. Even if you don't know music, you've heard that and you're like, I don't know what's wrong, but something's wrong right now. But after Christ comes, it is like this beautiful symphony of perfectly in tune instruments all harmonizing together. And this is so much of what Paul is about to talk about in the book of Ephesians. All of the goodness and truth of our spiritual identity that we're about to study, it's really a bringing to peace all of this stuff that was once just in total discord. So Paul starts off this letter not with a trite or trivial greeting, but with a deep and critical theological truth, grace and peace. And where does this 
grace and peace come from? I mentioned it briefly a second ago, but as we read on in Ephesians 1, 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This peace only comes from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. God is the source of all peace. And if we don't know him, then we don't actually can never know this kind of peace. But then he goes on to say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he starts off verse 2. He says, uh, grace and peace comes from God our Father and Jesus Now, blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is like building, he's building something here, right? He starts off saying that grace and peace and everything that he's about to talk about and break down comes from God our Father and Jesus. This is a declaration of Christ's deity here, right? He's like the Father, Jesus, the Father and the Son. They are one, right? Both God. But then in verse 3, he brings this distinction when he says, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there is this theological concept in verse 2 when he says the Father and the Son, right? The Father and the Son, they are one. But then there's this equally theological but familial concept in verse 3 when he says the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, Father and Son are one, but there is a distinction and catch it, relationship between the Father and the Son. We just spent four months um, doing this series on the Holy Spirit, talking about the person and work of the Holy Spirit. We worship a triune God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And each member of the Trinity are one and yet distinct from one another in in, in their roles and in how they relate to one another. And so Paul is pointing out this distinction here. There is Father and there is Son. And this is helpful for us, guys, because you got to catch this, because Paul is about to go off on what it means that we are sons, that we are children of this Father. And as we are in Christ, the Son, and because we are in Christ, the Son, we take on all of who He is. And He is, Jesus, so to speak, our clue for how the Father thinks about us, what the Father says about us, and how we ought to relate to the Father. So it's noteworthy that Paul doesn't just say God. He doesn't just say like grace to you and peace from God or blessed be God. He says God our Father and God the Father. Some people, maybe many of us in this room, I don't know, we come to Christ and we kind of only ever see Christ or as Kevin was talking about our preaching meeting this week, so often it's like uh, God, the Father is kind of this distant, like, big, sovereign, like, being. It's like, ah, but there's not a whole lot of relationship there. It's like, I have a relationship with Jesus. I might pray to the Father, but, like, Jesus. Jesus is like, I get, I get Jesus. But we can't miss the Father, because if we miss the Father, then we miss that we are children. And if we miss that we're children, then we miss the foundation of our whole identity. And if we miss our foundation, then those of you who have ever been a part of building some kind of structure know that the structure is eventually going to fall. We must see the Father here. And Paul knows this, and that's why I believe he begins verse 3 with this call for worship. It's a call for a blessing to be pronounced upon the Father when he says in verse 3, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's calling the church in Ephesus to recognize the blessedness 
and worthiness of the Father to be worshipped. Hanley Mao says that the idea behind this word blessed is that the Father would be praised with worshipping love. Paul is calling the church in Ephesus to praise the Father with worshiping love because of who he is and what he has done. And how cool is it that Paul starts this letter not with some theological heady dissertation, but with a very deep sense of worship. He starts the letter with worship and a declaration of who God is. This first 14 verse chunk of chapter 1 that we read this morning is really just Paul the apostle praising God wondering at God's love and grace for his kingdom kids accomplished through the work of his son. And it's important for us to see that Paul opens up this letter like this because it really highlights how important it is for us to know and understand and comprehend and look at the character and nature of God. I mean, Paul's writing to Christians who have been Christians, a lot of them, for eight years. This church was started eight years ago. They should already know this stuff. In fact, they should really know it because Paul actually stayed there in person for three years teaching these people. They should know this stuff. And yet Paul is here starting off his letter with this expression of praise and wonder at God's amazing love, reminding them to remember who God is and what he has done through Christ. And so if you're here today, and as we started Ephesians even, you were thinking, I already know this stuff. Like, I get identity. I've studied the book of Ephesians. Man, listen, if it was good enough for Paul to have to repeat, it's good enough for us to have to listen once again. Paul wrote this letter to really break down good gospel theology, and he will. He's going to do that so much in this letter. But he doesn't open with some systematic theological statement here. He he opens with worship, highlighting the love and grace of our Heavenly Father. There's a a story that uh, Charles Spurgeon talks about. He remembers the story of this pastor who there was a widow in his congregation who was very poor. And so one day he took some money and he went to the widow's house. He intended to give her some money. When he gets there, it looks like she's home and there's lights on and stuff. And so he starts knocking at the door and nobody answers. He stays for a little while. He knocks some more, but nobody answers. And he's like, man, so weird. I thought for sure she was home. Goes back home, shows up at church on Sunday, and the the poor widow is there. And he approaches her and he says, "Uh, hey, I I came to your house and I I wanted to give you something. I brought some money with me. Um, But I knocked and I knocked and nobody ever answered. And she said, you know what, I, I heard somebody knocking that day and I thought it was my landlord and I thought he was there to collect money and so I, I never came down and I never answered the door. Charles Spurgeon tells a story um, to show our tendency to misunderstand and miss out on the grace of God. The point is that God is this heavenly father with grace in hand knocking at our door, but many Christians miss out because they don't live as children of grace who run to the door expectant and confident that God is on the other side wanting to give from his grace, but rather we end up living in shame and fear and defeat and self-loathing and whatever else. And in turn, we end up hiding from the grace of God. Christians have no idea who God really is and so... They're not sure how he feels about them or what he wants with them when he comes knocking at the door of their lives. And so they miss out on who he is and what he has for them. And this affects our entire 
core of our identity. Because if we don't know who the Father is and why he's knocking at the door in the first place, then we will never really know who we are. Because who we are flows from whose we are. We, uh, we have three kids. Selah's 14, Solomon's 10, and Kingston is five. He's in kindergarten. And I was taking Kingston to school the other day. He was sitting in the back seat. I was in the front. It was just us two. And I like to play this, like, I mess around with my kids sometimes, just being a dork. And so I was, I was talking to Kingston in this little kid voice. And I have this, this nickname for him. I call him Scooby-Doo sometimes. Or I just call him Scoob. And so he's sitting in the back seat. And I was like, hey, wait. Wait, you're that, you're that Scoob dude, right? Like, I've seen you before, right? You're, your name's Scoob? And he was like, he's heard this before. So he was like, oh, no, Dad, I'm not Scoob. And I was like, no, 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 no. Your middle name's Doob. You're, you're Scoob, Doob, right? I, I, I saw you some, like in a movie or something. Are you, you're a famous actor. Your name's Scoob, Doob, right? And so I'm doing this whole thing. He's like, Dad, I'm not Scoob, Doob, right? He's going. And then so finally, he says, he like hits his, hits his hands on his legs. And he says, Dad, I'm your son. And I did what you did at first. I was like, I just giggled and I laughed and I was like, oh, that's cute. But then it hit me. He didn't say, Dad, I'm Kingston. He didn't say his name, which would have been the proper response to me, like messing with his name, saying that his name was Scoob-Doob. The proper response would have been, Dad, my name is Kingston. But he didn't say that. He said, Dad, I'm your son. And I saw, sorry, I get a little emo just even thinking about it. But I saw in my five-year-old son the heart of God coming through him. Because my son was declaring in that moment that the truest thing about him was not who he was, but whose he was. And who we are, guys, it flows from whose we are. We must know who our Father is. Paul starts off and says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We must know who our Father is, why he knocks at our door, what his intentions are, what he thinks about us, how he feels about us, and what he has to say about us if we are ever to know who we truly are. And unfortunately, man, we've been so lied to by culture, by even people who say and that they have our best interests in mind by our own flesh, by the enemy, by even people in the church. But I think for many of us, if we heard God actually speaking truth about us, we wouldn't even know if I could hit us upside the head. But my question is, who told you that? That thing that defines you? Who told you that? Because it... It wasn't God. I know because I talk with many of you. And I hear what those things create in you. I see that it creates in you things like shame. It creates in you things like making you feel very small and very defeated. It creates in you things like fear. It creates in you... A sense of heaviness and weightiness. It creates in you things like condemnation and despair and hopelessness. And if that's what those words create in you, then those things are not from God. Because I don't know about you, but when I look at the life of Jesus, Jesus made even the worst people in society feel like a million bucks. 
save the religious leaders. But everybody else, the like sinners and tax collectors, he made them feel like they were something. He made them feel like they were the only person at the party. So my question is, who told you that? Do you remember all the way back in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve have disobeyed God? And remember, they're hiding in shame, and the Father comes running for them. And when he called out to them and asked where they were, Adam responded, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid. And the Father's response, who told you that? Who told you that? Who told you you were naked? You see, they had believed a voice other than their father's voice. And so many of us have been listening to voices our entire lives, thinking that they are the voice of God or from the heart of God, and they're not. Who told you you needed to be ashamed? Who told you you should be ashamed of of who you are? Who told you you should be ashamed when you become vulnerable and naked and let yourself be exposed? Church, who told you that you don't deserve? Fill in the blank. Who told you you don't deserve love? Who told you that you've sinned so much and are too far gone to be truly forgiven? Who told you that you don't belong? Who told you that nobody wants you around? Men, who told you? Nah, you're not a real man. Who told you that? Who told you you had no value? Who told you you didn't have what it took? Who told you you didn't have what it takes to to be a spouse or to be a parent or to be a a child or to be a faithful friend? Who told you they didn't have what it takes? You weren't talented enough to do this or to do that. Who told you that you deserve to be full of shame? And who told you That God was disappointed in you. God says, who told you that? I didn't didn't tell you that. I did not tell you that. Nothing that God says about you will ever produce in you shame or condemnation. Because on the contrary, Romans 8 says that those who are in Christ actually cannot be condemned. And those who are in Christ will never be put to shame, it says in Romans 10. And nothing God says about you will ever produce in you fear. Because the Bible says in 1 John that God is love and that love casts out fear. And the Bible says that Jesus is the prince of peace and you are his. And so if you're hearing words that you think are maybe from God or from the heart of God and they create in you anxiety, no, no, no. That's not. That's not from God or from the heart of God. And if you hear something that makes you feel defeated, listen, nothing that God ever says or that comes from the heart of God will make you feel defeated or small. Because Romans 8 says that you're not just a conqueror, which is the opposite of being the defeated one. You are more than a conqueror. And nothing that your father says or that comes from the heart of God will ever make you feel weighed down or heavy laden. Because Jesus said in Matthew 11, and we see in Isaiah 61, that he actually came to remove the heavy burdens from us. Now, I'm not saying that you're not going to experience some guilt if you're sinning. 
A little bit of guilt is good if you're sinning. That's probably the Holy Spirit. But shame and condemnation, that's not from God. See, I can, guilt and, and the delight of God can actually co- coexist with each other. I can experience some conviction and the absolute smile and delight of God at the same time. But shame and the delight of God do not and cannot coexist. Many of you in this room experience that. So when God speaks, you will experience compassion, acceptance, liberation, peace, calm, and the delight and smile of God upon you no matter how you have acted or not acted. And we have to hear this as we're getting into this book of Ephesians because culture, our flesh, and the enemy will work in tandem with one another to speak very loudly about who we are. But we must know what the Father says about us. And he's already spoken on the subject. So we got to open our ears, guys. We got to dig into this stuff and get like everything out of it that we can. Because when we know what the Father says, says and who he is and how he thinks and feels toward us, then it's going to be a whole lot easier to identify the lies when they come. So we must know what the voice of the Father sounds like in order to understand who we are. But we also must know what his character is like because who we are flows from whose we are. I'm going to read it again, but our verse and a half today is Ephesians 1, verses 2 and the beginning of 3. Grace to you. And peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You want to know about the character of God? Here it is. It starts with Father. I said this a couple weeks ago. That God is Father. I want to make the argument that all of who God is starts with him being Father first. And that every other part of who God is flows out of that. And that Paul, under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, uses this word Father on purpose. I believe that Paul is taking a cue from Jesus here. Jesus referred to and related to God primarily as Father and taught us and his followers to relate to and refer to God primarily as Father. Now, it's not that God is not other things. God is a king, for instance, but he is a king who is actually a father and acts like a father, which is not the case with all or maybe any kings. So who is God? What is his character like? Like Father. Now, don't hear me say that God's character is like your father. That's not what I'm saying. Some of us had fathers that was like, ah, man, I just, I just wish they could have done better. And they probably wish the same thing. God is not like them. Some of you have or had fathers who were incredible. But listen, even the fathers who got like the dad of the year awards, God's not like them either. All of their incredibleness was just a foreshadow of our heavenly father. So, Is the character of God extremely complex and multifaceted? Yes, but Father is where it all starts. We see this further illustrated when John says in 1 John, God is love. Now track with me here because I want to build this for a couple of minutes, okay? John says, God is love. Now there are plenty of adjectives in the Bible that describe the character of God. God is merciful, right? God is gracious. God is compassionate. Adjectives. But show me another time in Scripture 
when a noun is used like this in talking about God. God is love. It's a noun. Not God is loving, an adjective. Not God loves, a verb. God is love. It's a noun. God, that is God embodies love. And that's why John says right before this in uh, 1 John 4, 7, that love is from God. Meaning love emanates from the very essence, from the very being of God. And then he says, And the one who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Meaning that all true love has its, or, has its origin in God. God is the source and very impetus of love itself. And so then, everything God is and everything he does flows from his core being, which is love. And so when we talk about all the characteristics of God, we must view them through the lens of love because God is love. The Bible doesn't say that God is justice or that God is sovereignty. God exercises justice. And God exercises sovereignty, but God is love, which means that his justice, his sovereignty, his discipline, and, and everything else that is a part of his character needs to be understood and viewed through the filter and lens of love. And that is the defining factor because, listen, fathers are motivated by love. Kings may be motivated by power. Military leaders may be motivated by success. Masters and lords may be motivated by productivity. But fathers are motivated by love. And so we must understand the nature of God through the lens of love, which is why I believe Jesus taught his followers to relate to God, not as king or as commander or as judge first, but as good, good heavenly father first, because God is love and only good fathers have love as their motivator and goal in who they are and all they do. And yet, so many of us have yet to have a revelation and understanding of what it means that God is our Father and this kind of Father. We may know him as King or as Commander or maybe even as Savior or Redeemer. For those of us who do know him as Father and we call him Father, it's a, it's a Father that looks a lot more like a Commander or maybe like a Dictator. And like I said, God's a Commander. He's a, he's a King. He's a savior, all of these things. But it comes from, all of that comes from his heart culture of heavenly loving father. This first section of the series, Kingdom Kids, it's about identity. But it all starts here. It all starts with father because fathers define the culture in any given family. And if you know the, who the father is, then you will know who you are. And so Paul is out to remind and reassure the church here and. Ephesus, who the king their father is, and in turn, who they are as kingdom kids. Because our tendency, just like them, is to forget, or for some of us to never know at all who the father is and who we are. I'd say that there's probably dozens of people in this room, maybe hundreds in this room, who have no idea who they are because they don't really know who the father is and what he's really like. And some of you are thinking right now, yeah, that's, I, I see that. I, kn I know God, but I don't like really know him as father. And if I do know him as father, I don't know him as that kind of father. 
I don't know him as that kind of father. And so what, Dom? Like, what do I do? How do I, how do I know God as father? How do I know what he's like? And, you know, we could spend 10 weeks just searching for the father heart of God in scripture and do like a 10-week series. And maybe we will at some point. But I would just answer that question by saying, if you want to know what the father is like, look at the son. Because Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the father. And I only do what I see the father do. In other words, when I act, when I speak, when you feel or experience something from me, you are experiencing what the father is like. And so as you look in scriptures, you read and study the life of Jesus on your own time, begin to look for the father heart of God and you will find the father in the son because though there is a distinction between father and son, the son takes on Jesus, has the culture of the father. And I'll end with this. Listen, guys, God doesn't want anything from you. He doesn't need anything from you. He doesn't come to your door knocking, um, looking for your attempts at righteous living or at faithful service. He comes to give out of the essence of his being of love. He's at the door knocking, not there to distribute condemnation or defeat or disappointment, He's there to distribute from his essence of love. He is there to distribute grace. He's like there with grace in hand. So in this season, when you begin to think about God, when you stop to pray, when you take a minute to just be quiet, when you sit in scripture, when you come to church, when you listen to that podcast from that preacher or whatever, know that God is knocking at the door with grace in hand. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, that's, that's you. I mean, all the way from the garden, we see this family culture, the way that you interacted with Adam. It's a culture that we've been redeemed back into. It's a relationship that we've been redeemed back into. But Lord, it's so far from so many of us, which means that we need a supernatural revelation of whose we are. We need a supernatural revelation of the Father. So I just want to ask in the coming weeks and coming months and even in the coming minutes right now, Holy Spirit, you would come and break stuff open for us to get a revelation of the Father. Would you please do that, God? Would you even do it now as we take just 20 or 25 minutes to sit and respond. Speaking of which, church, the reason we have this second set is so we can just kind of like exhale. You just took in a lot. I just talked a lot for 45 minutes. And now we just get to kind of like exhale in response to that. 
and we get to continue inhaling the truth of who God is. And so I'd encourage you to not leave, you know, to like really just sit. How often do we just sit and just stop? For some of you, you haven't stopped all week. Right now, these next 20 minutes could be your first opportunity that you have in your entire week to just go. So take advantage of that. Take that opportunity. I believe if we will let it, that this season in the life of our church and in your individual lives can be a very healing and very liberating season for many of us if we, if we let it. And I just want to say specifically before I get off the stage that um, I think there's some people here who uh, you're, you're kind of weighed down with bitterness toward somebody in your life, father, mother, maybe a father, mother figure. And it's like salt. It's like salt. And it's bitter and it's overwhelming, the saltiness of it. But God is wanting to, by the water of his word and the water of his truth, to dissolve that salt. To dissolve that saltiness of bitterness in your life. Starting today. And if you need help with that, the prayer team would love to pray for you. I believe this can be a really healing season. And somebody had a prophetic word on Wednesday night at our uh, prayer meeting that this coming season for the church was going to bring multifaceted healing and restoration. It was going to be a multifaceted healing and restorational work. And I, we really believe.